Hi, I'm Deb. This is Frankie V. I'm Grant. Hi, this is Phil. I'm Aaron. I'm Steven. Hi, I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Matt. We're Tim and Terry. I'm Susan. Hi, this is Phil. Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners like you and me. Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. It's easy. Just visit supportseminarydropout.com. Just go to supportseminarydropout.com. And I'm your host, Shane Blackshear. Interviews with leading Christian authors, leaders, and thinkers. Let's go. My guest is Nijay Gupta. Nijay, welcome back to the show, friend. Yeah, thank you. It's been a while. It has been a while. I can't remember. Oh, I think it was what it was your New Testament book, the the your oh, beginner's guide. Yeah, that's right. And then we had also talked right. about another one because you published like three within very like very close together. You're one of those people, man. Uh, yeah, you're, maybe the faith one. Yeah, you're you're writing more books than I can read. Um, the case in point, just came out with this one: fifteen New Testament words of life, a New Testament theology for real life. Get a shot of that there. Um, well, so for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do. Yeah, thank you. I live in Portland, Oregon. We've been here seven, eight years. My wife and my three kids. Um, I've been teaching at the seminary level for about 10 years, a little bit more than 10 years. I, I can't believe I just uh, got a notice for my 25th high school uh, reunion, so that makes me feel officially old. Um, I teach New Testament at Northern Seminary, so listeners may know my colleagues, um, Lynn Kohick, Scott McKnight, David Fitch, Beth Thucker-Jones, and others, uh, wonderful people. So how do I spend my time? Uh, I read, write, teach. I have an electric bicycle like a good hipster. Um, drink coffee. Watch watch soccer. You know, Portland stuff. Yeah, Portland stuff. <laughs> uh, I think Portland, I may have said this last time. I mean, Portland. Um, Northern, I think I may have said this last time. I feel like Northern is like the New York Yankees. Like they just went out and got all the best players, you know? Like it's like <laughs> all of my... All of my favorite authors, uh, scholars, all under one roof there. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I use the Bulls. I like like 90s era Bulls analogy a lot. Last Dance Bulls, right? Yeah, that's right. So the new book, 15 New Testament Words of Life, um, you know, it kind of serves as uh, a theology of the New Testament book, but with these centering off of these 15 words, what gave you the idea to do it that way? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, as I said, I've been teaching the New Testament for a long time. And in a typical New Testament introduction course, you talk about author and situation um, and the structure of the text. You know, it's, it's important to learn all those things. But students are really eager to know the so what's. You know, I, I hear the word righteousness. I hear the word grace or witness or religion. And, you know, students want to just talk about, okay, what does this mean for friendships? What does this mean for work? What does this mean for conflict in my church? And I'm surprised at how few academic books actually try to process real life. So you'll notice real life appears in the subtitle because it's so funny. I, Shane, I know you're a reader, so you've read plenty of New Testament theology books. They rarely touch on 
just the mundane of everyday life, grocery shopping, right? Um, applying for jobs. I mean, just the real nitty gritty of what our lives are actually made up of when we're not podcasting or we're not sitting in a seminary class. And so I got this idea that, okay, we hear a word like righteousness and it's just Christianese. And the thing that really struck me was, but if you're in the first century and you use the word righteousness in Greek, dikasune, you're not using technical terminology. It's just the language you'd use for someone that's good and honest and trustworthy. So what I try to do in this book is really break down the Christianese and say, if we talk about holiness, what are we actually talking about? And how does that relate to everyday life? Yeah. So it sounds like part of what you're saying is these words as they were used in in the New Testament, in the context, these were not inaccessible words. These were not words that were used. Uh, they weren't like technical terms or academic terms. These were like everyday people words. Absolutely. I mean, there are some exceptions, like holiness is a religious word, religion is a religious word, but let's just take the word grace. Um, we tend to use that mostly in a religious way. Um, you know, we'll, we'll name churches Grace Chapel or something like that. Uh, we can use it in other ways, like saying someone's graceful, but it was just a common word in the ancient world for having a disposition for favoring or liking something. And so the best example is just the way we spoil our children. I mean, we show them grace even when they're naughty, and that's just the way it is. And and so we can all understand this word without turning it into this all religious thing. And, you know, one of the things I appreciate about what the book does is – is just that idea to bringing it to normal life. You know, I grew, I didn't grow up. I went to uh, a Christian college. Um, and in college, there were a lot of us who felt like, um, you know, we're going to go change the world for Christ. And I feel like what most, most of the time what happens is it's not that anybody makes a decision to not do that, <laughs> but it's that, you get older and you get married and you have kids and you know what we thought was going to what we thought it meant to live as a christian faithful to jesus um is not what our lives are like you know it's not like necessarily traveling to another country it's like i got to go to home depot man to get a plunger you know yeah and so what happens is when we when we only envisioned our life doing these kind of really exciting, sexy things, um, we don't know what it means to be faithful and go to Home Depot on a Tuesday, right? Totally. I love that you brought that up because there's an interesting debate in Pauline studies about whether Paul expected his converts to go out and go door to door and share Jesus with people. And Paul doesn't ever specifically say that. Now, that doesn't mean he would have been against it, but the expectation was you would just kind of invite people over for church, which was at someone's house over a meal, and 
you just kind of invite them to observe what your community does and invite them to be a part of what you're doing and hope they kind of catch on and you would share with them your devotion to Jesus. But it wasn't this whole, like, I'm going to, I'm going to be a missionary in this country. I'm going to spend two weeks going door to door in, you know, some village in the middle of nowhere. I, I hesitate to use the lang overused language of lifestyle evangelism. But it was really that. It was this. It was this. Evangelism sometimes strikes us as the wrong word. Now, it's just sort of living as a follower of Jesus and showing integrity, goodness, and hoping and expecting it starts to rub off on people. I mean, it reminds me of the last word in the book, which is witness, and it strikes me that. Like, you know, normally how that word is used is that we are being a witness to Jesus. Like we're testifying as I have seen, here's what I've seen Jesus do. Here's who I know Jesus to be. There's also kind of another way where it's like we are allowing others to be a witness of our life. Kind of like you were saying, like we're inviting people in and this is how I'm doing life. And you can come watch what that does, uh, what that looks like. And, um, you know, it's kind of is witnessing us as we witness to or about Jesus. I think that's precisely it. Um, you know, again, I'm not against sharing verbally. I think sharing verbally is it would have been necessary in the ancient world because nobody knew anything about Jesus. So you'd have to share things. But I think what people would have been really interested in is how these Christians are different. And that's going to come out in how how they're witnessing your life. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, there, and Paul says things like about you know going leading a quiet life. You know, it's just this idea of like putting our heads down and being faithful. You know, like not necessarily trying to create movements or uh, draw attention to ourselves, um, but just just being faithful and then trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to move and work in those ways. Um, Nijay, what are, first of all, how did you come up with the 15 words? Like what, that, that has got to be a daunting process. I mean, the New Testament is quite large. <laughs> how did you, how'd you narrow down to the 15 words that you wanted to use? Yeah, that, that's, um, there was actually no magic to that. I, what I didn't want to do was to do kind of a free floating word study because it can have kind of a generic quality to it, almost like reading a dictionary, which I didn't want to do. So what I did was I, I basically chunked the new Testament into 15 sections, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, so forth. I combined Romans and Galatians and some other books. Um, and then I just said, okay, what is one word that is distinctive in Matthew? And righteousness is an obvious one. Jesus says, I came to fulfill all righteousness. Um, forgiveness is just really important to Luke. It kind of stands out, uh, the, the phrase forgiveness of sins. And I kind of worked with what was prominent in most of these books. So the Johanna literature, love and life, just kind of are like neon signs. Um, some of them were easy. Let's put it that way. So I knew that cross and first Corinthians and second Corinthians go together. Faith, Galatians and Romans, that made a lot of sense. 
um, grace in Ephesians, you know, is by grace you're saved through faith. We all memorize that one as, you know, as teenagers. Um, other ones were tough. Revelation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure, and I wrestled with that one. Uh, Witness came out as something that I knew was important to the text, but I could have chosen other things as well. Maybe blood um, or, you know, maybe faith would have fit that one in a different way. Hebrews was also tough. Oh, yeah. Peace isn't isn't actually the most important theme. I could have done sacrifice or atonement or uh, other things. Faith would have fit that one too. So some of them fit very well. And someone fit somewhat. And I was just hoping, Shane, nobody noticed. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think people often ask what what you left out. And I actually think maybe I'll write another one with 10 more words. I just have to see if anybody reads the book. Do you have things that come to mind when people ask you? Uh, Yes, absolutely. So truth would have been one that I feel like I probably should have included. Zondervan and I, we we talked about how 15 was just a really nice round number. 16 just wouldn't hit you quite the same way. <laughs> um, but truth was one. Um, joy. Joy was another one. And actually, for a while, I thought it was in the books. So I've misled people every now and again. But I, I can think of some for sure. That's funny. What what are what are what were your favorites or the ones that you that stuck out to you as you're writing it or you know the ones that came the most easy? Yeah, it stuck out. Um, an obvious one for me is you know some of these chapters started out as hunches and placeholders, and then as I got into it, I kind of had aha moments. So one of them was forgiveness language in Luke X. And it is there all over the place. You have the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, you have longer forgiveness teachings. Um, it's there in the Lord's Prayer. You know, it's in the in the Book of Acts all over the place. But one thing I wasn't expecting is how much Luke pairs forgiveness and repentance. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's hard to find forgiveness and not find the word repentance, and we often treat these as opposites. If we're calling people to repentance, we're not forgiving them. If we're forgiving them, we're not expecting repentance. But Luke actually wants both. <laughs> he wants them to repent, but forgiveness is the is the disposition or attitude of God from beginning to end. But it's funny, when, you, when I me- remember some of these stories, I misremember them because I thought the angels rejoice over one person be forgiven. They're actually rejoicing over the repentance. That's right. That's right. So you've got a section. I think you titled the section. There's no forgiveness without repentance. That's right. I mean, I think that can kind of, um, you know, that that sets off some evangelical red flags, right? Um, because yeah. we've we've it, we had it hammered into us this free gift of repentance. The idea for so many of us that something might be required of us is has become anathema to us. But the gospel testimony is a little, little bit different. 100%. And there are, you know, people often forget that Jesus taught about judgment. Um, he has these texts that are very in your face about kind of turn or burn. I mean, he does have those kinds of teachings. Matthew, Luke, I mean, they're, they're, in, they're in everything. One thing that's interesting about Luke is some of his teachings 
are very insistent upon repentance and um, thwarting judgment through kind of what you do. But then there's these other texts that almost teach a pure forgiveness without the expectation of repentance. Hmm. A good example would be Jesus's cry from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, from the cross, he doesn't call for repentance. I think Luke does want us to hold these things in tension. Even though we should be expecting people to repent and we should be, in a sense, holding their feet to the fire, there's also a place for this non-quid pro quo feeling and sentiment of just grace. That, see, that is interesting because in one regard, and I think you have this quote or something close to it where, you know, Nelson Mandela says something about like, I think he uses the word bitterness, like, you know, bitterness is drinking the poison and expecting the other person to die or, or something. Maybe I'm butchering that, but like, so there's, there's, there's this kind of concept that like forgiveness is really important, not even so much for the other party, but because what withholding it does for you. And so in that case, it wouldn't, it wouldn't depend on their repentance or, or not. But there's this other lens where we can look through and say like that it can kind of be a, an invitation to be someone's doormat when we, um, you know, allow, uh, when we not only forgive, but we forget, and they have not chosen to choose repentance. So, you know, it makes perfect sense that, that Luke would want us to hold those things in tension. And, and it really begs the question, I know you do pastoral ministry, what do we want as a result of forgiveness? Because too often forgiveness is just sort of like, okay, you're off the hook and I'll never see you again. And that's, you know, what changed my mind about that is looking at the story of the prodigal son because the we think often of forgiveness as letting go. And in the story of the prodigal son, forgiveness is holding on. That's right. <laughs> He's hold, yeah. He wants to hold on to him. The father wants to hold on to the son. It's not about letting go. It's actually about embracing. So that 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 was kind of eye-opening. There's a bigger context of family and covenant and church and grace and love that is much bigger than our very superficial understanding of forgiveness that we sometimes get in a big tent revival sermon. Well, one of the things you say is often the dominant picture we see in forgiveness or think of in forgiveness is uh, you're being weighed down by something and forgiveness is setting you free. It's liberation. Um, and while you know there's certainly parts of that that are true, uh, one of the pictures that you see is more one of reconciliation, that this, because you are forgiven, we can actually be together. We can actually have, we can commune um, with each other and with God because of forgiveness. And that is a, you know, perhaps a more, a primary picture of what forgiveness is and is doing. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think too many people have the image of the law court where you just want to be, you know, counted, not guilty whether you did it or not. And the whole idea is you're never going to see the judge again. And that's kind of sentiment is here and there in the Bible, but that's definitely not the dominant image. The dominant image is family. Yeah. Beautiful. What else? So forgiveness. That was, I really enjoyed that chapter. What's another one? 
Yeah, another one, another one that I wrestled with was James in terms of what to focus on. I could have focused on temptation, wisdom, like perseverance, I guess. Um, I ended up doing religion because I get kind of frustrated that the word religion gets a bad rap. And I actually start out the chapter, you might remember this, with kind of a social media phenomenon that happened about 10 years ago with this spoken word, you know, guy who kind of rapped uh, about the difference between a real relationship and quote unquote religion. And he was just saying all those things you're used to hearing that religion is cold, legalistic, programmatic, and a relationship is vibrant and personal and forgiving and all this stuff. And it really resonated with people and it was, you know, shared thousands and thousands of times. And then I was interested because a Catholic priest made a counter spoken word in the priestly garb. And he's basically saying you're, you're misunderstanding religion and we can differentiate between good religion and bad religion. And he's basically saying often when people are talking about a relationship and not religion, they want to go in an individualized way rather than a corporate way. And so it makes all the sense the world a Catholic is going to say community and tradition are really important. So I start out with that anecdote to say when James actually uses the word religion, he uses it positively. And actually in, in most of history, even Christian history, the Christians have used um, relig religion language in kind of a neutral way to talk about our relationship with God. So I tried to recapture some of that in that chapter because it's so easy today for any of us, and I know you've felt this way sometimes, Shane, that the, insti the Institute of Religion, the or organized religion has let us down. And we're sick of mega churches and we're sick of institutions that have corrupt leaders. Um, so then we want to reinvent the wheel, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to have worship with myself or my family or my best friend. There's nothing wrong with having small groups and things like that. It's wonderful. But the idea that I'm the first person to think that the institution is corrupt and that I can do it better on my own. I mean, I think James would critique that. So I wanted to refresh our appreciation for what religion actually is, which is this culture and community and tradition um, and, and organization in the good way, you know, a, a, a system that helps and supports us to not only worship God, but, but be in healthy community with each other. And that's what the church was always meant to be. Nije, am I right in thinking that like the way that we think of religion, and I'm not even just talking about the like religion being kind of rote and stale, all that stuff, but the way that we think of religion is like vastly different than how like a first century person would think of religion. Like we kind of, you know, bifurcate it and compartmentalize and, and you can, you can choose it or not. You can not be religious at all, but, but that that was kind of more of like a baked in concept of what they would think. It was everywhere. Religion was just taken for granted. Um, and you just assumed the gods are there and they control everything that happens, business, politics, harvest, um, family life, and definitely different people had different views, Jews, Greeks, Romans. I mean, everybody, you know, people had different views of exactly how it worked. 
but virtually everybody is religious. And every now and again, you'd have a moral philosopher who asked questions about whether the gods are really involved. Is there anybody really up there? But they were the odd ducks. Um, you know, they they were the kooks. They would be the flat earthers <laughs> of today where we say, yeah, they exist. Yeah, their people exist. But, you know, that nobody takes them very seriously. Um, so this idea that religion is privatized, it's a choice, and it's about my fulfillment, those are three things that your average person in the ancient world did not believe. So you probably wouldn't have heard someone saying like, oh, I'm not religious in the same way that they would say it today. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if you said that to somebody, if you said I'm not religious, the person would like take three steps back because you're going to get struck by a lightning. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> what, what do you hope for this book that someone, someone reads this book and what, what do they take away from it? I, I think the biggest passion behind it is helping people or reminding people that the Bible, even though it's written thousands of years ago, talks about the very things that we care about, all of us, friendship, family, hope, peace. I mean, every person, whether you're quote-unquote religious or not, wants depth in their life, wants stability, um, wants to connect with something bigger, whether that's a legacy or um, your heritage. And I hate when people say, there's nothing important or interesting in the Bible. It's antiquated. Just because it's old doesn't mean it doesn't have something to say and that it doesn't connect to our humanity. So throughout the book, and especially in one or two chapters, I actually use Hamilton the musical as an analogy because here you have a story that is very old for, for Americans. It goes back to the very beginning of our, you know, Western experience. And you could say, who would ever make a, you know, popular musical out of this? Because it's just about some political skirmishes that have hundreds of years ago. But the way that Lin-Manuel actually constructed this, it taps into the deepest parts of our humanity, friendship, um, you know, conflict, betrayal, forgiveness. Um, and, and so the, the beautiful blend of modern music and ancient costumes or, you know, all that kind of stuff. I, I want to see people see the Bible that way. And, and, you know, just, you might remember this anecdote, but Lin-Manuel is not a Christian. He said that before, but kind of in Hamilton's heyday when it came on Disney plus, I think he tweeted out a Bible verse from the old Testament about every person sitting under their fig tree and vine. And he said, I'm not religious, but this really speaks to me. And I just love that. Like would I love Lynn Manuel to like, you know, be a Christian and embrace the faith. Of course. But just the fact that he could see, a vision of equality and hope in the Old Testament of all places. Um, that's meaningful me, for me as a Christian. And I want everybody to see that in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, the Bible's not just a guide for going to heaven, uh, a textbook for how to hold a church meeting. 
it, you know, because it has poetry and song and narrative and proverbs, um, it really teaches us the art of living well before God, before others in the world. And, and I, I want that for my kids. I want that for my neighbors. I want that for myself. Yeah, man, I'm uh, so I'm working on a, a sermon that I've for not this Sunday but next. But I'm I'm supposed to be preaching on the authority of Scripture, and, uh, and you know I'd I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on that. But I think something like this book really helps because, um, one, I think it's really important to pay attention to the big the big movements of Scripture, like not just you know a few verses here and there, but the movements of scripture, the narrative that's being told here. And I feel like these casting, you know, these big 15 words are really 15 themes um, are really helpful in, in seeing like what, what this means for us and how, how can a narrative be authoritative, authoritative. Um, And I feel like this is a really helpful resource with that. Thank you. Yeah. the authority of scripture, you know, I've moved away from just what I call folk apologetics, where you just say, you know, look how we can prove from archaeology that this happened and this happened. That can be helpful just to give plausibility to the Bible, right? There was a man named Jesus. Sure, sure. He was Jewish. He had a following. He died on a cross. You know, that his disciples continued to carry on his message. That's helpful if people wonder, is this a real person? At the end of the day, I don't think very many people become Christians because they're able to corroborate That's right. granular historical details. Um, I think it gives I think those things give people enough to to kind of be interested in the Bible. I think at the end of the day, the whole reason I call this book Words of Life comes from the Gospel of John where Jesus gives, you know, Jesus is maybe at the height of his popularity. And I, it would have been fun to be Jesus's PR person and say like, okay, Jesus, we got a big crowd here. There are thousands. Give them your top message and let's get another 10,000 more. And he gives this weird teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And he rebukes people and they're just like, forget about it. And all the, you know, hundreds of people walk away and say, I'm done with this guy. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you know, you going to leave too? And they say, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Um, and what we gather from that is they don't actually understand what Jesus says most of the time. But there's something special there and they know it and they know it's worth sticking with it through thick and thin or at least to the betray um but i think it's that way for me when i first started reading the bible as a teenager i grew up in a hindu household my brother became a christian gave me a bible i started in genesis it was really i'm reading this thing and thinking this is different this is special it's weird (laughs) I still don't know exactly what some of these rituals mean, but they're diagnosing problems in my life that I didn't even realize I had. (laughs) And some of those things are reasons why we can kind of existentially 
connect with the Bible rather than just say it was hand delivered from an angel and we have the signature. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And it really is, man, I read, I read the gospels and you see, I think even if I wasn't a Christian, even if I couldn't buy into Jesus's divinity, I would have to say, I think Jesus is like operating on a different level here. Like the things that he's saying, you know, turn the other cheek. Uh, if anybody steals from you, don't demand it back. I mean, these, this stuff is bonkers. Like you would, it feels alien, you know, like this came from somewhere else. Um, and, and then looking what happened, like the thing, what Jesus left in his, his wake. I don't know if you've read Tom Holland's Dominion. Uh, I was actually just going to mention that. Yeah. Uh, oh, you got it. Okay. You got it back there. I got it here somewhere around my desk is a mess. Um, but you know, the, so his, his, for those who don't know, his thesis is that like, and Tom Holland's not a professing believer. He's just a historian. Uh, he's on a journey. He says he is on a journey. Yeah. He's, he's not, not at all hostile to the faith, uh, but just that historically Jesus changed everything and what we would call what obvious morals were not obvious before Jesus. Uh, this, you know, ideas of human rights and Humility, things. Service. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Selflessness. Uh, these were not obvious to humankind. Like something happened, something changed with Jesus and... You know, again, like if I wasn't a believer, I would just have to believe that something bonkers happened when Jesus came on the scene. You know, both both of his life and then what what people did in response to that. Something very weird happened, um, and and it, I think it's just a testimony to uh, the teachings of Jesus. Yeah, the next book I'm writing, um, which won't come out probably till 2024, is called Strange Religion how the first Christians were weird, dangerous, and attractive. And I'm doing all this study on how Christians broke pretty much all the rules of respectable religion. They had no sacrifices, no priests, no temples. You know, they, uh, and it wasn't incrementally like this. From the beginning, they just discarded uh, all this stuff. There's, there's a opponent of Christianity named, you know, Celsus, and he actually says the Christians are so weird that if everybody did what they did, they would want to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not actually true, but that does reflect the reality that they were very countercultural just in the way religion was done. Um, and the only thing I can think of that is behind that is that the Christ event changed something for this group. And they would, they couldn't go back to the way things were. And that's, you know, that's what I want to see happen in the lives of Christians today. Part of the reason I'm writing this book is I feel like there isn't much distinctiveness to being a Christian today, especially not in the places where I've lived. And I, what I don't want is closed mindedness and hatred and for Christians to separate themselves out. But what I do want is that we're really following that original way of just being weird people that love Jesus and love others. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
That sounds really cool. I'm look. I'm looking forward to that book. You, you and AJ, our friend AJ Swoboda, you had a podcast. Now, is it? Are you starting? Did you start a new podcast or is it the same one with the new season? Good question. Good chance to clarify. All right, set the record so, straight. So, you know, a couple of years ago, we started this podcast called In Faith and Doubt. A lot of that came out of AJ's book, After Doubt, and AJ's book, in many's way is to call people who are kind of exiting the faith back, back to Jesus. You know, the subtitle is how to question your faith without losing it. And so we were kind of like a Pied Piper trying to get people to come back um, from the fringe, from the precipice, from the edge, or even who've left. Um, and and we realized after, you know, a couple years doing this, we've kind of exhausted what we had to say on the subject of doubt. But I think then we had these people who are on this journey with us who have turned around and come back and they say, now what? (laughs) Um, And so I think we're in a mode now instead of just talking mostly about doubt, we want to go back to basics. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have faith? Um, so, for example, I broke my foot a few years ago, and I spent a long time just trying to get that foot healed. Um, and that means not using it sometimes or being very gentle with it. Um, so, I spent a long time just protecting it. And I feel like people going through recovery from doubt do a lot of things that aren't natural, but necessary for that period of time, like not going to church for a while Um, or, you know, just various things that you do to heal from hurt. But then it's bad idea to not walk on that foot. Once it's ready, you need to actually start putting weight on it. So we've changed the name, kept the same vibe audience format to slow theology We've talked about this, uh, AJ and I, throughout our previous iteration of the podcast. Slow theology comes from slow church, slow food, and the idea that often we're malformed by the instant way that social media works, um, kind of just the life cycle we're in of, let's hate this thing, and now turn around, let's hate this thing over there. And AJ and I are both in a place where we want to do right by our kids. We want to do right by our families. We want to live in a healthier way. And that means slowing down. And that means not being quick to judge, not being quick to get all the answers to all our questions, but just kind of taking baby steps (laughs) in our faith. So for example, I think a series that we're going to have coming up is just a really slow series through the Apostles' Creed. And just being honest, you know, what is it? Why does it matter that we believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth? Why is it? Rather than just confessing it, we're just going to talk like, what parts of that make you uncomfortable? What parts give you hope? Why would I confess that? And what's the anti confession? You know, what are we confessing against? I think that'd be fun because AJ's a pretty smart guy. So I'm excited for those conversations. 
That's super cool. Yeah, I can't wait to, wait to hear that. Is technically is it if I was subscribed to your old podcast, is it the same feed or do I need automatically to automatically? Okay, it. cool. All right. <laughs> we were deciding whether we wanted to jump ship and create a brand new podcast. Um, but because this is going to be the same people that were following us, uh, you know, before, because some podcasts are just one-offs you know each episode is its own self-contained interview or topic but the weird thing about our podcast was you know there was a consistent theme and so the same people would listen to every episode essentially that was our that's what we understand so they're wanting to do more we were going to decide are we going to end the podcast or we knew we knew we had to change so the question was, do we end it? And then we didn't really have energy to just start something different. Or do we continue it on, but in a new era? And so I think the idea was, this is kind of a spinoff, uh, but we kept the same. In, in technical speak, it's, it's the same RSS feed. Gotcha. No, it's good to know. Cool. Well, I was when I was seeing a few things here and there online about it, I was like, that's really cool. Uh, and I'm excited because I listened to all of your previous episodes. So I was really, really glad to see you guys back at it. So that's very cool. Yeah. I'll try to, if anybody's listening, I'll try to include a link to your podcast on the show notes to this episode. So. Yeah, that's great. We, we, we decided, um, we don't have money. I don't know if you do, but we don't have any funding. So we just did as cheap as we could possibly do. And we knew it wasn't going to be up there with all the fancy, you know, production. It's, I just do the production now, which is not a good idea. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's a kind of a ma and pa. So we've been excited that we have a good group that stuck with us on the journey, despite the low tech ad hoc nature of it. But we just thought we'll keep going because we're having fun with it too. I mean, that's the beauty of podcasts, man. And if you got, you know, a couple hundred people who are needing what you have, then that's all yeah, worth it. It's worth yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Nije, you have always been such a good friend of the show. I love the, when we get to talk. So um, thanks for being on the show once again. Thanks, Shane. Thanks uh, for keeping the podcast on too, because that's one of the ones I listen to. Oh, thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Remember, you can find all the show notes for this show and all shows at shaneblackshear.com. Oh, and hey, have you ever thought about starting your very own podcast? I bet you have, and I think you should do it. In fact, I've created a course just for you to teach you everything that I've learned over the last couple of years producing Seminary Dropout. So if you're interested in podcasting and want to learn how, go check out my course. You can go there by typing in podcastingforeveryone.org. And you can get a special discount by typing in the discount code Seminary Dropout, all one word. That'll give you 25% off. So go check it out. If you have any questions, let me know. Okay. Thanks to those that left ratings and reviews on iTunes this week. Remember, that keeps the show front and center. Also, remember, you can find me on Twitter at, at @beardonabike. on a bike. 
That's at Beard on a Bike. Also, I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash Shane Blackshear123. And remember that Seminary Dropout is listener supported. You can visit supportseminarydropout.com and press become a patron. Remember, this music you're listening to right now is by D.L. Rossi. You can find him online on iTunes and at dlrossi.com. All right. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Love you. Take care. Yeah,